Keith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you've given us. Even if we don't think we're blessed at all, we are. Lord, I pray for forgiveness when we take your blessings for granted. Lord, as we just reflect on who Jesus is this morning, who our Lord and Savior is, I pray, Lord, that you can take distractions out of our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you be with me this morning and help me to stay focused on your word. Help me to be in tune with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives can be transformed, hearts can be convicted, hearts can get joy, hearts can have peace here this morning. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us. We thank you for your word and for the promises found in it and that you're trustworthy and that you're worthy of our worship. I pray that you bless our time together this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, once again, it's good to be back this morning preaching and with my church family. Uh, I'm, I'm still fighting off a little bit of a cold that's been lingering for the last couple of weeks, so if I just seem a little, I don't know, reserved today, that's why I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm just fighting off this cold still. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. And as you're turning to John chapter 6, I want to share with you one of the most scariest times of my life. It was one of the most nervous and scared I've ever been. It actually happened on my honeymoon. As me and Stephanie were coming back from our honeymoon, we stopped in New Hampshire at the camp that we met and the camp that we worked at together, and we decided to watch a movie. So we went to the movie theater, and of course, you know, no one's there. It's the middle of the day. And I found out that as I was walking, I couldn't find my wallet. And I'm like, you ever do that shuffle? You're like, okay, keys, phone, wallet. Wait, wait where's my wallet? And I was doing this like as if it was somehow and I missed it in my pockets. And I'm like, I think I dropped my wallet in the movie theater. So I go back and it was one of the last showings. Like they were closing the theater. I knock on the door and I was like, hey, I think my wallet's in there. And I was really nervous because, listen, I, I don't ever carry cash with me. I don't ever have money. The most important thing in my wallet are receipts, right? Because I, I can't lose those. Like, I get reimbursed for some of these. But I had like $1,000, $2,000. And I'm like, uh, okay, I, I definitely need to find this wallet. So I'm in the movie theater on my hands and knees, which is disgusting. Right? The floor is sticky. It's, it's dark in there. I'm like, can you guys turn the lights on help me out a little bit? I have my flashlight on my phone. I'm looking. I can't find my wallet. I literally went to the only two seats that were sat in, me and Stephanie, in that theater. Couldn't find it. And just as I was about to give up and have to start calling the credit card companies, calling DMV, right, all the hassle, sometimes losing your money is not as bad as going back to DMV and canceling your credit cards, but long story short, one of the workers finds it. It was like right in front of our faces. He's like, hey, is this it? I'm like, yes, that's it. Thank you. Don't open it. Don't look in there. Give it back. Thank you. Right? We've all experienced, I'm sure, at one point in our lives, losing something. Maybe you go to the grocery store and you lose your wife. You're like, well, she was, where'd she go? It happens to me all the time. Well, I'm shopping with Stephanie and then somehow she ends up in the clothes section. I'm like, we're here for food. Or vice versa. I end up in the technology section. She's like, where are you? Right? We've all experienced losing something and your heart drops. Most of the time when you find it, hopefully you're relieved, you're excited, you're like, praise the Lord, thank you, yes. This morning, what we're going to look at, we're going to see a crowd of people who are looking for someone. They're looking for Jesus. And if you go to John chapter 6, verse 22, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. 
So I'll read it, and I'll give a little bit of context as to where we're at and who this crowd is. So John chapter 6, verse 22 is where we'll start. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Right, we're jumping in the middle of a story, but let me give a little bit of a recap of what's been going on. The previous day, Jesus did a miracle. He f- took five loaves of barley bread, which were about the size of Twinkies nowadays, and two fish the size of about sardines, and he multiplied the food. He fed a crowd of over 5,000 people. We learn that this crowd, in, in John chapter 6, verse 2, we find that this crowd of 5,000 were following Jesus because of the signs, the wonders, the miracles that he was doing. He was healing the sick people. And before he fed the crowd, he continued preaching to them. He continued healing them of their sicknesses. After witnessing the miracles and the feeding and listening to Jesus preach, by the end of the day, the crowd was ready to take Jesus and force him to be their king. That's in John 6, verse 15. After... Uh, after that, Jesus perceives in, the, in his in, in their, their perceives the crowd's hearts and knows their thoughts. He actually what he dismisses the crowd from him. He he sends them away. He goes away from his disciples. He sends his disciples away as well to be alone. And two weeks ago, we looked at why, or three weeks ago, why would Jesus do that? We know from the gospel that Jesus's mission, his first coming on earth, was the cross with a crown of thorns not a robe with a golden crown leading the nation of Israel in battle against the Roman Empire. See, the people wanted a conquering king to defeat the Romans. Jesus then, after he what dismisses the crowd, dismisses his disciples, he's alone. Between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, he walks on water towards his disciples as they're in their boat, battling against wind and waves for hours and hours and hours. And seeing Jesus... Right? Initially they were afraid, but after that they worshipped Him. The Bible says that they exclaimed, they cried out, truly He is the Son of God. And last week, the ma- or two weeks ago, the main point was that's the proper way a follower of Jesus acts. That you worship Jesus regardless of your circumstances. If you had the best week of your life or the worst week of your life, Jesus is still worthy. It doesn't change His worthiness. It doesn't change how much glory is due to Him. Now we get back to this crowd. It's the next day. So Jesus, He sends them away. He's alone. And this crowd is now looking for Jesus. They're searching for Him. And for whatever reason, they decide to sail across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum in hope that they'll find Jesus. Now, some scholars have thought maybe they overheard Jesus' plans with his disciples or they heard the disciples' plan of where they were going. Maybe they assumed that since one of the closest, biggest synagogues was in the town of Capernaum, maybe they thought Jesus would be preaching there. Maybe, but maybe it's as simple as God directed them to be there to fulfill his mission, to bring Jesus closer to the cross. Whatever the case, the crowd goes and they actually find Jesus. In verse 25, let's continue reading. They find Jesus. John 6.25 When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So when the crowd finds Jesus, they ask Him a valid question. They say, Jesus, how'd you get here? Right? They, they saw the boats. They said, okay, Jesus didn't go with His disciples. They also know Jesus didn't have His own boat. No one saw Him walking along the shore, walking at night. Most people wouldn't travel at night. So they asked Jesus, how'd you get here? When'd you get here? And instead of answering their question, I love this, Jesus gets right to the heart of the crowd. He asks them the question that they probably were going to work up to and ask Jesus. And number one in your notes, if you want to follow along, Jesus confronts the crowd. Jesus confronts the crowd. The first thing that Jesus reveals is their motive. He tells them why they're seeking Him. He knows this. In verse 26, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Again, this crowd was originally drawn to Jesus because of the miracles, because of the healing. The crowd at the end of the previous day, they wanted to make Jesus their king. They wanted to march into Jerusalem and, and destroy the, the Roman occupation that's going on. But now they're coming, they're seeking Jesus. Why? Because their bellies were filled the day before. Because they wanted to be fed again. And in Jesus' day, your next meal wasn't necessarily guaranteed. And what I mean by that is if you wanted to eat, you had to work for it. You had to make it. <clears throat> if you think back to how Jesus commands His disciples to pray, even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says to them, or He leads them, give us this day our daily bread. Right, So bread didn't just magically appear. You weren't just magically fed. If you were lazy, you didn't eat in Jesus' day. You needed to work. You needed to bake it. So now this crowd who received a free meal the day before, they didn't need to work for that. At the end of that long day, they got a free meal and they ate until they were satisfied. They didn't have to ration the food. They didn't just have to hope and say, okay, I hope this fills my stomach. No, they had enough until they were totally satisfied. This feeding, and we'll talk about this a little later, it did get the crowd thinking about Moses, thinking about the Old Testament of how God did feed the crowd with manna. Right? But their thought was quickly changed the next day to this. We want more food. Give us more food, Jesus. Feed us today. And throughout John's Gospel, as we work through it, we're going to continually see a comparison. A thing that takes place, a distinction made between superficial or shallow followers or believers in Jesus and those who are genuine in their faith. Those who truly believe in Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw the disciples respond to Jesus. They worshipped Him. They praised Him for who He is. And we said that's the attitude that a Christ follower, that a Christian should have in our mind and our heart as we worship Jesus. We know who He is. We follow Him. We obey Him. We listen to Him. We trust Him. Yet, on the contrast side of things, now we see this crowd. This crowd that's looking for Jesus, which you might say, wow, that's good. They're looking for Jesus. They, must, they might like Him. But we see their motive was selfish. They wanted more food. They wanted to be fed. 
And in the end, here's a little bit of a spoiler, at the end of this chapter, the crowd goes away. The crowd actually walks away from Jesus. And it just got me thinking, Jesus is not interested in superficial or shallow followers. If you look at this crowd, he cuts right to their heart, right to their motive. It's interesting that every time there's a crowd that gathers around Jesus, what makes them go away is Jesus and what he says. If you look at that from today's culture and context, you say, Jesus, maybe this public speaking thing's not for you because you have this big crowd. You, you missed the opportunity because of what you said. They all went away. Don't you want these people following you? Don't you want these people to love you? But actually what Jesus is doing is he's weeding out those who are genuine in their faith and in their belief and those who weren't. And the sad truth is there's a lot of churches, there are a lot of Christians, air quotes, Christians today, who follow Jesus with a shallow faith, who follow him because they want something out of it. They selfishly think they'll get something from Jesus. They have this selfish motive. They look for it, maybe they ask this question, well, what's in it for me? Jesus, if I follow you, what's in it for me? They might look for glory, power, wealth, happiness. Right? They might look for all those from Jesus. But what was Jesus' message to his followers? His message was to take up your cross and to follow him. What does that mean? It's a call to die. It's a call to surrender. Die to yourself. Die to your way. Die to your will. And instead, follow Jesus, his way, his will. Surrender. And you don't have to answer this out loud, but I just want you to think through these questions. Why do you follow Jesus? Why should we follow Jesus? And are you being motivated by what you'll get out of it? Are you following your own agenda? Or are you following God's will, God's agenda? Are you being obedient? So again, we see Jesus confronts the crowd. He cuts right to the heart of what their real motive is. And the second thing we see in verse 27 is he uses this two-food analogy. Verse 27, Jesus says to the crowd, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. It's interesting, staying within the context of food and feeding, Jesus sets up these two different foods. He mentions food that perishes. I would say this is physical physical food, physical possessions, things of this earth, things that don't last forever, things that are temporary. Each day, guess what happens when we eat? A few hours, we get hungry again. We need to eat again. And as good as physical food is for our physical bodies, yes, food is good for us, but it doesn't last forever. If you go to the buffet today after church and you, and you pig out and eat so much calories, guess what? You're going to be hungry tomorrow. You might feel sick tonight, but you'll be hungry again tomorrow. Every week I have to go back to Stop and Shop, spend even more money on groceries, and they'll either rot in my fridge because I forget that I have them, and then I've got to throw them out, or I eat them just to go back the next week and to buy more food. Why? Because I'm always hungry. Because we need food. In this sense, he's saying don't focus or don't waste your life pursuing the things that have no eternal value. At the end of our lives, guess what happens to all of our stuff? All of our possessions. It gets left behind. You don't take it with you. Even if you put it in the coffin with you, it stays there. Instead, Jesus tells the crowd what to pursue. He says, not the physical, not the food that perishes, 
but rather, he says, food that endures to eternal life. And the second food, I would say that's the spiritual food. The spiritual. Jesus answers this question, how do we get this eternal food? How do we get this food that lasts forever? He says, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is making a claim. He's saying, I will give you everything you need. I will give you food that will eternally satisfy you. So eternal life, salvation, it doesn't come from us. We can't work for it. We can't work towards it. We can't buy it. Rather, it doesn't come from us, but it comes from Jesus. He, co- he comes from Him, the giver of life. He's the one who promises eternal life. He's, he's already promised that in John chapter 5. He's the one who gives life. And don't miss this. Jesus is making a claim as to who He is and His authority. He says He's the one that gives us the food that lasts forever, that will never perish. He's talking about eternal satisfaction, spiritual life, eternal life. And I came with just thinking, how can Jesus make this claim? Right? What, 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 what an outrageous thing to say. If I stood up here this morning and I said, Church, if you follow me, you'll never die. If you follow me and do everything I say, guess what? You'll live forever. You'd probably say, oh, yeah, David, you're out of your mind, but prove it. What, what gives you the right to say that? That's a, lot of, that's a heavy thing to say. Why? What gives you the right? Jesus, as he continues in the same verse, he says this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And here it is, for on Him, on Jesus, God the Father has set His seal. God the Father has set His seal. In ancient times, a king's seal, usually with a ring or, or a, you know, a ring sig- signal or, or a symbol, he would stamp it on, on letters, or he'd stamp it on documents, he'd stamp it, and that king's seal was the word of his authority. It was a guarantee that the message came from the king. And in ancient times, the seal, not a signature, today we have signatures, the seal, not a king's signature, was what authenticated the king's message. As the king sealed it and maybe gave it to a deliverer or gave it to a messenger, as the messenger would give that, that was the word of the king. That was the king's authority being decreed, being given to the people. Jesus states what he's just claimed is true. That he has the authority to do it because God the Father, God himself, has set his seal on Jesus. He's claiming the authority of God. Jesus has the full authority of God. And again, we looked at that in John chapter 5. Jesus made that claim again. As Christians, we cling to that promise. The hope of salvation that comes from Jesus. We believe that He's the giver of life. He's the one that makes that promise. Why? Because He's God. Only God can make that promise. Only God can give us life. And we have Jesus Christ who is fully God, fully man, and the giver of life. So number one, Jesus is confronting the crowd. He gets right to their motives. He tells them what to go after, what to pursue. Not the physical, the spiritual. The second thing is Jesus now responds to the crowd. And the next verses, the crowd asks him a question. In verse 28, they said to him, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. 
After his claim, the crowd asked this question, and I'm going to paraphrase it in my way. Here's their question. Jesus, what work do we have to do to do the work of God? Now, if you really think about this, that sentence, it, it kind of answers it in its own. What work do I have to do to what? Do the work of God. And I love it. Jesus points and says it's of God. There's no work for you to do. The, the Jews got caught up with the word work. They missed the point of Jesus' promise. It's God's work. For the Jews in Jesus' time, they classified men into three categories. One, you were either a man who was good. On the other side of the spectrum, you were a man who was bad. Or in the middle, you were a man who, you know, you're in between. Sometimes you're good, sometimes you're bad. It was not uncommon for the Jews to believe that you can gain some sort of favor or merit or, or like extra credit with God if you do good things. Have you ever noticed how much the Pharisees cared about how they looked externally? Right? Everything they did was, was, was public. Everything they did was visible. People could see it. People would look at them and say, wow, look how much God loves them. God must be so pleased with them because outside they're doing everything good. They're tithing. They're fasting. Look at them preach. Look at, look at them. Wow, they're, they're so good. And when they have a conversation with Jesus, every time Jesus, what did he go after? Their hearts. The inwardness. Their hearts. He called them a whitewashed tomb. Which what meant what? On the outside they look nice and clean and shiny and, and good, but inwardly they're rotten. Inwardly there's death. He says, they honor me with their lips. He quotes from Isaiah, they people honor me, the Pharisees honor me outside with the external things with their lips, but inwardly their hearts are far from me. Even in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus contrasts the Pharisee and externally everything he's doing seems right, but he's proud, he's arrogant. And on the other hand, the tax collector has humility. And Jesus says, who went away justified by God after worshiping, after going to the temple? He says, the tax collector. Why? Because of his humility, his heart. So every time Jesus goes after their hearts, and I have to be honest, not much has really changed in our world today. Most people who claim to be a Christian, or most people who believe in some sort of deity, some sort of God, they hope that their good works will earn them favor when they die. They have no assurance, but they have this blind hope where it's like, Okay, I really please when I die. I really hope I just have more good than bad on this on this grand you know this grand scale eternal scale. The Bible has a truth that says all of our good works, the best that we can give to God, is not enough. The Bible says on the other hand, we're all in trouble. We can't get to God on our own. We can't do enough good to get to God. That's why Jesus had to come to be our Savior. As Christians, we don't live that way. We don't live with this blind hope with the fingers crossing, you know, please, please, I, I just, I hope that I, I somehow God will love me and be good with me and, and, and pleased with me when I get to, you know, and hopefully I can get to heaven when I die. As Christians, our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's the giver of life. Our faith in Him gives us full assurance that when we die, we will spend eternity in heaven with Him. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you've been adopted as sons and daughters that you belong to the kingdom of God and God's family. And we see Jesus' response to this crowd. He answers them in verse 29. He answers them saying, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So according to Jesus, what's the work of God? To believe in Jesus. To believe. 
And you'll continually hear me say this every week as we go through John's Gospel in one way or another over and over again. That is because of the finished work of Jesus Cross, Jesus Cross, Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. It's because of what Jesus did we're saved. Not because of what we do. It's not about us. The Bible's clear in Ephesians 2 that we're all dead. And that we need a Savior to come and give us new life to bring us back from our death. Our spiritual death. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation's a free gift that's been given to us. And any attempt to try to earn it, or win it, or pay for it, or steal it, is a slap in the face to the gift that God's given us. If you just think about that, by Jesus' death on the cross, His mercy and grace has been poured out. He paid the price in full for our sin. The perfect love and the perfect wrath of God come together at the cross, at Jesus. It was accomplished. There's nothing needed. That's why Jesus says as He dies, it is finished. It is finished. To put this into maybe a a story, how would you feel if you invited me over to your house tonight for dinner? You invited me, Stephanie, and Naya, and you made this, this nice dinner, a nice spread, and you had your fancy you know, chinaware, or not, because I'm not fancy. You can do whatever you'd like. And after dinner, I say, wow, that's so good, and, and, and you, you get out dessert, and we eat, and I'm like, man, this is so good. Thank you so much. And on our way out, imagine if I just went like this. Okay, so how much do I owe you? Is, is 20, 30, 40? I mean, what, what, what's, what's good enough for you? Right? You'd be like, no, this was, this was a pleasure. I wanted to do this. It was a delight. It was a gift. I don't want your payment. You, if you're being honest, you'd be slightly offended. Unless you're like, well, maybe I could use the money. No, but in the same sense, it would be, I'd hope you'd probably be offended because I'd be cheapening the gift. I'd be cheapening our time to say, okay, you know, how much do I owe you? In the same way, our good works, our trying to be good enough for God, it cheapens what Jesus has done for us. It cheapens His death on the cross. It's basically saying, Jesus, what You did up there was good. But it wasn't good enough. I'll add a little bit more. I'll make it a little better. And if anybody ever adds to the cross, adds to the grace of God for salvation, run. Whether it's someone on TV, whether it's a church you're visiting, whether if, if, ever, if it's ever preached from this pulpit, it's heresy. It's not the cross plus good works for eternal life. It's not the cross plus going to church or tithing or this or that. It's not the cross and then converting to Judaism for salvation. That was Paul's argument for the Galatian people in the New Testament. The Gospel is always and should always be that the grace of God alone is our salvation. It's for our eternal life. It's Jesus' death on the cross. It's sufficient. He paid it in full. It was enough. And the third thing, as we keep moving along, the third thing with the crowd, we see Jesus corrects the crowd. He corrects them. In verse 30, now the crowd's talking back to Jesus. They said to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
The crowd said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. What we see now is the crowd is now demanding more signs from Jesus. Here's what they're saying. Jesus, you fed us yesterday. You fed us for one day. But if you remember Moses and the, and the nation of Israel, our ancestors, remember you know, Moses fed them for 40 years? So, you know, Jesus, what are you going to give us to eat today? You owe us a, a few more days here, a few more years. What's, what's, what's for today? The Jewish people had this belief that when the Messiah would come, he would feed the nation like Moses with the bread from heaven. They expected their Messiah to continually provide physical food for their physical hunger, to take care of their physical needs. Also, the feeding of the crowd the previous day, as they're thinking about this, and they're thinking back to Exodus and thinking back to Moses, it was not sufficient proof of Jesus' claim because it wasn't this heavenly manna bread that Jesus gave them, but rather it was just barley bread. So even looking at his miracle, as impressive as it was, they said, you know, that was good, but you know, Moses gave us bread from heaven. You just fed us barley, a poor man's bread. That's all you multiplied and gave us. The crowd again demands signs and miracles and feeding so that they might know that Jesus is sent from God. They again want Jesus to be their Messiah their way. They want to dictate to Jesus how their Messiah, how he should be their king. Demanding more food, demanding more miracles. And I love what happens next. Jesus corrects the crowd. Have you ever been, maybe not, but have you ever been in front of a crowd and you're like, ooh, they got a lot of things wrong. I have to correct them. It's a little intimidating. Right? If you have thousands of people looking at you, but what does Jesus do? He cuts to their heart, he confronts them, he responds to them, and now he corrects them in their thinking, in their theology. He reminds them that it wasn't Moses who did the miracle, who fed their ancestors, but God himself did the miracle. He made it rain down manna from heaven day after day for 40 years. God provided for his people even when they grumbled and complained. The second thing Jesus corrects from the crowd is he reveals that he, the Messiah, Jesus, is the true bread from heaven, not this physical manna, not this physical bread. In verse 32, Jesus says, but my Father gives you the true bread of heaven. And if you look at the, the, the verb tense there, it's the present tense. Gives you. So it would, you could read it like this, but my Father is currently giving you the true bread of heaven. Jesus reveals what? He's the true bread. The third thing that Jesus corrects them of is that the bread of God comes down and gives life. It gives eternal satisfaction. As the manna gave the Israelites physical life, physical nourishment, it fed their bellies day after day, Jesus, again, is claiming to give life. Life that will be satisfied. Life that will be eternal. And the fourth thing and last thing that Jesus reveals about the true bread of life is that true bread of God is for the world. I don't know if you caught that. It's for the world. Not just the Israelites. Not just the Jews. Jesus says that the life He gives is for everyone. It's for the world. So that all may who believe in Him his eternal life is not just for the Jews, but rather Gentiles as well. Ephesians chapter 2, I won't read it, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11 to the end of the chapter, it talks about how the Jews and the Gentiles are now what? Brought together. They're, they're now fellow citizens and fellow members of the household of God. The wall of hostility has been what? Torn down. 
And Paul in Galatians will furthermore say there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, right? He gives that whole list, and it's about who eternal life is for, who salvation is for. It's for all who believe. It's for all, not just exclusively the Jewish people or the Israelites. So Jesus reveals himself, as Jesus reveals himself to the crowd, they ask him, right? He reveals these truths, and they ask him, Sir, give us this bread. Your translation might say, Lord, give us this bread. It's, it's a title. It's a, it's a respectable title to Jesus. Sir, give us this bread always. Their request echoes that of the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, she asked Jesus for the living water. Right? Her request was, well, Jesus, give me this living water. I don't want to come back to this well day after day and draw more water. And I'm actually going to stop here this morning now because the next verse, I know I preached about on this a year ago, I'm not going to listen to that sermon. I'm not going to steal it. But I want to go through a lot of some, some deep theological things next Sunday. I'm excited for it. Right? But we're going to look at Jesus. What does he mean when he says he's the bread of life? What do we learn about that? Because the next verse, it says, Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. That's like the big mic drop. right? Jesus, give us this bread. Give us this eternal bread. Jesus you know, drops the mic. It's me. <laughs> I'm the bread of life. I want to end with just an application. Just something that we can take away and think of this week. We live in a world that is full of hungry souls who are trying to fill themselves up with things that won't last. They look everywhere they find, they, that they can and try to find satisfaction in relationships, in money, in sex, in power, in religion. Right? They're looking in all these places, and they might get satisfied temporarily, but that's just it. It's temporary. They need more and more and more. And Jesus' claim, apart from Christ, right, all those things are temporary, but Jesus alone satisfies our hungry souls. Just think about that this week. Jesus satisfies our hungry souls. He alone gives us life eternally. That's the good news that we need to believe that we need to live out in faith and that we proclaim as we share the gospel with our family, our friends, our co-workers, that in Jesus, He satisfies our spiritual hunger and gives us eternal life. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise You this morning. As You have revealed, You are the true bread of life sent from the Father. Jesus, You are our Messiah. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. I pray, Jesus, that this week we can just cling to the promises that You've made. That we know if we have faith in You, if we believe in Your Word, then we have eternal life. The Bible says that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That we belong to God. So Jesus, I just pray that there's anybody here this morning who's spiritually hungry and they've been searching for years and they don't know where else to turn to, I pray that they'll turn to You. Jesus, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be convicted of our sin, repent, and trust in the promises revealed in Your Word. Jesus, we thank You that the cross was enough. That the cross is perfect and sufficient. That it's not the cross plus anything else for eternal life, but that You paid it all for us on it. Jesus, as we take communion, God, as we take communion this morning, I pray that we can just truly set apart time and focus and be reminded of the sacrifice, reminded of your body that was broken, your blood that was poured out.
And as we're about to sing and proclaim the deep, deep love of Jesus, I pray we always remember that. And I pray that as we go back to work, school, or just go back to our lives this week, that we remember how much we're loved, that we have a Savior who died for us, a Savior who paid it all for us. And I pray that that will transform the way we live and the way we love others. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.